You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. Black History Month. That was a robust good morning back. I love that. Good energy. Uh, I'm Reverend Josh Raderly. I serve as the co-pastor of Teaching and Community, and we're in the series called Disruptions. And so one story I want to share with you is about a disruption that happened in my life when I was five. My parents decided they were going to get a divorce. Um, My mother made this decision because it was just really difficult for her, both financially, uh, mentally, physically. There I am at five. Um, because of my father's, as I've shared before, uh, his substance abuse issues. And so my mom, making this bold decision that the best thing to do was to leave my dad and to divorce and figure out a different situation, also found herself in a really difficult place financially. Um, She was living with her best friend because she could not make it on her own, um, which also meant that she needed to figure out what was going to happen with me. And so she um, asked my grandma if my grandma would take me and let me live with her and be with her for a time until my mom could get back on solid ground, and then she could come back and raise me and take care of me and be present to me. And so my grandma, without missing a beat, said yes. Probably part of it was because it was her son that was not being present in my life and was not caring for me as one should as a father. And so I think she probably felt some level of guilt in about that, and so she stepped up as that sort of parental role. But my grandma's and my relationship blossomed into something that she says now was the greatest gift that she'd ever gotten that she didn't know at the time. Um, And we have a very close relationship now. And I can remember some really vivid special memories with her during that time uh, when she was raising me. I remember starting kindergarten and grandma being grandma because she couldn't say no. Uh, And so I was like, "Can can I ride my red Jeep? to church, to, to, to school, and like chain it up like a bike. <laughs> and so I, I rode, if you remember these little, these little uh, automated cars that you could ride around, and so it, it wasn't super far school, but it was far enough that she just walked next to me, and I drove that thing to school, and we chained it up, and then she walked back, and I got, got in it after, and I'm like riding down the sidewalk, like, this is my grandma, like, she just thought this was totally cool, cool and normal, uh, and thought it was hilarious, even though the kids at school started to make fun of me eventually. Um, I can remember her putting the ABCs all over her living room wall and it like hurting the wallpaper over her being like, it doesn't matter as long as you learn your ABCs because she was trying to deeply instill this in me. I also remember my grandma taking me to a storefront Pentecostal church Sunday after Sunday and when everybody would say, let's go down to kids stuff, um, I'd be like, I'm not going to kids stuff. I want to, and I would like sit on the front row. I refused to go because I wanted to watch the preacher and I was mesmerized by the preacher. And then I would go home and I would break out this broken down music stand, very similar to this, but it was extremely wobbly. And I would sit my grandma dong on the couch and I would preach whatever five-year-old, six-year-old truths I had taken from the sermon that day. And my grandma, I remember she grabbed me one Sunday after church when I was preaching to her the message, and she just looked at me in the eyes and she said, Jay, I wrote it down exactly, you're going to be a preacher one day. Five years old. Now, my mom eventually got to a place where she was grounded and had a house, and she got remarried. And so, after a long legal woes and battles with my father, she was able to gain custody of me. And so, I remember the day 
walking um, up to my grandma's house after school, and the police officer was there with my mom in the driveway and gave the papers to my grandmother and explained that I was to go now and live with my mom. I remember clinging to my grandma and crying and holding her and screaming because I didn't know what this really meant. I think in my, my little you know, mind as a toddler, I think I thought that I'd never see her again when that really wasn't reality. Um, I loved my mom and I wanted to be with my mom, but I also loved my grandma and I didn't know how to live in this weird limbo space. And so the officer like rips me traumatizingly out of the hands of my grandma and like places me with my mom and it's just this really dramatic moment. Now, my mom worked really hard to make up for those years in that time. She was trying to be really present and really loved me and she had worked so hard to get me there um, and also tried to create a lot of boundaries with my grandma so that I wouldn't lean on her as a parent and lean on my mom because I had gotten conditioned in that way. So a lot of tension, a lot of difficulty, long relationships. I started to act out in really intense ways in school to the point the principal decided to tell my mom, your child has one more chance, he's going to be expelled. And so my mom took me to church at 12 years old. I had stopped going to church while, my mom, while I lived with my mom for several years. And so at 12, we, we decided that it was time to go back. And honestly, the very first Sunday that I went back to church, it was like everything that my grandma had instilled in me at like five, six, seven years old, it all just sort of came rushing back. That excitement of being in church and the community and the worship and the experiencing of the Spirit and the feeling of coming home, as you described in many ways, because home was very nuanced for me. And I just immediately immersed myself in the life of the church. And my behaviors really changed because, you know, if you want to get invited over to, you know, sleepovers and hangouts with other church kids, you can't be a menace. you you got to follow the rules. So I knew I needed to act better and that really changed a lot for me. And I remember at 13, I remember the children's pastor at my church saying, Josh, I think God has a call in your life to be a pastor. And I remember going, yeah, that's what I want to do. And for the rest of my teenage years, that's what I focused on. Other people were doing sports and music things, and I was not into any of it. I was in the church. I was in church every day, um, literally. I went to church every day and assisted the pastor after school. I look back at the directory of my life and I can trace these sort of key unexpected or unplanned moments and see how they shape the trajectory of my life. How at, a, at five years old, spending time with my grandma in church planted this seed that would soon blossom into something beautiful with just when I needed it, my formative years of 12, that would soon then fan the flames a vision of what my whole purpose and meaning and career in life would be. I could look back at that time and think, oh, what a terrible thing and how awful it was and it was, and we one can acknowledge that. But one can also acknowledge, I think at the same time, the beauty that came from the pain and the suffering. I am not one who holds to the theology that God makes bad things happen to us, uh, or that God orchestrates bad things for good purposes, but instead I'm one that believes that when bad happens, God is one who uses the bad, who uses the hurt, who uses the pain and the evil to bring about good, and not only in our own lives, but in the lives of others. And sometimes we never, may, may never even experience the own good in our lives, it may be instead that we experience the goodness throughout other, other people's lives or throughout time. It, the scriptures tell us that God works all things together for good. It does not say our good, okay? Uh, it, all, all things work together for good. And so sometimes we don't always see the trajectory of the good uh, and the good that happens in our lives and the pain that we've gone through. It could be perhaps a much larger trajectory beyond us. And so my question for you to sit with this morning is for those of you who maybe are parents, how does your current experience of parenting 
compare to the expectations you had before becoming a parent? Has it, has it panned out the way that you had imagined, the way you had expected? Did it all look as you would have hoped? Was it harder? Was it easier? Were there things that were surprising? Were there things and times when you saw behaviors in you that reminded you of your parent and you went, why am I doing that? Were there moments when you went, I am going to intentionally not do that thing that my parent did? And maybe it really upsets your parent because they think you should be doing it the way they did it. And maybe it's propelled some hard conversations. How have, have there been moments when you've questioned your parenting choices or your parents' choices as well? All of us in this room today, in some capacity, have probably had some type of capacity of parenting, whether that is a, a literal parent or adoptive parents or foster parents or perhaps being communally parented in an, on a passive way by an older sibling. What does that look like for you? I don't know. How, don't, don't, you don't have to define parents as anything culture does, but who parent you? For me, I would say it was my mother and my grandmother. And how did your expectations hold up for them? Did they meet your expectations? Were you disappointed? Have you spent a lot of money in therapy trying to figure that out? <laughs> They're probably different than you imagine. And I know for my mother and I, as we've had you know, a, a challenging story and a challenging journey, we've had to be willing to express our disappointments with each other, our feelings, our places where expectations did not meet our hopes. Believe me, my mother was also disappointed with how things panned out in her marriage, with how her parenting journey looked. It was not what she had dreamed or she had imagined either. But she was doing the best she could with what she had been given, trying to make the best choices she could. Now, Josh, at 33 years old, can say that. Josh, at 25, couldn't have said that. Josh, at 30, probably couldn't have even given my mom the grace that she needed. But I'm at a different point now in my journey to look back and go, huh, let me be quick to extend the same grace to you as I would want to be extended to me if I was in your circumstance. This is really part of the human experience. We all look back and we all have critique and thoughts about our parents' parenting styles, and our parents have thoughts about their parenting styles, and sometimes alterations are made, and sometimes just generational patterns are passed down. But it's all part of the human experience. It's not unique to you. It's not unique to me. And so how do we navigate this? How do we walk through this? Quite frankly, this isn't something that I think is talked about enough in society, let alone in the church. Instead, it's just respect your parents and don't talk back and don't question and be quick to forgive instead of grappling with the realities of what has been, what is, and what will be. And so I think one of the things that has helped me over the years is I identify with different biblical characters. Um, and for me, one of the stories that I glean a lot of wisdom and insight from to think about like, oh, you know, like, yes, this, my story can be hard, but like, Everyone's story has some elements of difficulties. All the way back to our ancient scriptures and how did they navigate those things then? Or what could they have done better or differently then? Not to say that scripture is the ideal model of how one handles family trauma. God knows that's the truth. But one of the biblical stories that I most identify deeply with is out of Exodus 1. And it's really the upbringing of Moses. I want to read this story with you today, but to give you some background, um, Pharaoh gave this order that every newborn baby was to be thrown into the Nile River. Now, upon giving, being given this instruction, at the same time that this order was given, there was a man and a woman from a Levi tribe that got married. Um, and the woman was named Jochbed, and this would be Moses' mother. She became pregnant with her first son, and she hid him for three months until she couldn't hide him any longer. Now, I don't know if that was because he was a really ornery crying baby, if he was getting larger. It, it, I don't know what reason was, but three months was the cap until she had to decide that what she was going to do next. And so the Bible tells us that she put him into a basket laid him amongst the reeds on the bank of the Nile River. And this is where I want us to pick up in our story today, Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. 
Soon, Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river, and her attendants, which might be my, I want to add, is a Hebrew, walked along the riverbank. When the princess saw the basket among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it for her. When the princess opened it, she saw the baby. The little boy was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Then the baby's sister approached the princess. Should I go find one of those Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you, she asked. Yes, do, the princess replied. So the girl went and called her baby's mother. Take this baby and nurse him for me, the princess told the baby's mother. I will even pay you for your help. So the woman took her baby home and nursed him. Later, when the boy was older, the mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted him as her own. Y'all, this is some well-orchestrated hustle right here. She, I mean, literally, like, 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 like I, I want to be like, just like in the room when they have this conversation. It's like one of the Hebrew servants is like, well, let me tell you something. I'm actually the maid for the Pharaoh's daughter, and I was listening, and she really wants a child, and she hasn't been able to get one. And guess what? You have a child who's three months old, and then if you, if they, if you get caught with it, it's going to get killed. So here's what we're going to do. You're going to take that little baby, you're going to put him in this basket, and when she's getting ready to go do her daily bathing, and I'm over here holding her robe and her towel, you're just going to push that little basket with that baby over by the reeds, and then she's going to be like, oh, a baby! And then I'm going to be like, oh, no, who's going to feed it? <laughs> and then the Pharaoh's daughter is going to be like, oh, my goodness, what will we ever do? It's so cute. It's crying. It's so helpless. Oh, I've got, I know what to do. I can save the day here. I've got, a, you know what? I've got a friend. I've got a friend who recently had a baby, and because of your father, all of them were killed. And so she's got this bursting breast milk that needs somewhere to go. Is maybe I could take this baby to that woman and she could feed the child and like kind of help you in this moment. Would you do that for me? Oh my gosh, thank you. That would be amazing. Great, let me just take this baby for you. I'll bring it back when it's done. And then she, she wanders off with the child and clearly introduces it to the princess. The princess says like, you know, I'll pay you to feed my child. She's literally getting paid to breastfeed her own child. This, this is some well-orchestrated hustle. Like, this is the ideal setup right here, okay? And so she does this, and until the child's no longer needing to be breastfed, then when the child no longer needs to be breastfed, the child is brought back to be raised by the princess and is adopted in this story. And so I think this is kind of interesting when you think about this narrative. There's a lot of questions that come up for me. I imagine this had to be a really difficult situation, that, she, that, the, that the mother had not anticipated that the same time she would be pregnant, that the government would decide to have this ridiculous law and rule to kill all the boys in the, in, in the Hebrew community. And so she's having to pivot. This isn't what she had hoped. This wasn't what she had imagined for raising a child. And then on the other side, I imagine the Pharaoh's daughter would think that if anybody could have a child, if anyone could have a boy, anyone would have the favor of the gods, it would be her, and yet she can't. And I could imagine there's some pressure from her father to have a child. And yet she's not meeting his expectations. I bet her expectations aren't being met. And so all of this family trauma and intensity, all of these childhood and hopeful parent expectations come crashing down together. And so the mother has to decide what is an alternative situation for rearing her child because clearly she can't raise him and take care of him and keep him safe. So what and who could? And so she puts him in a basket 
and leaves him by the reeds. I identify with this story because in many ways, that is exactly how I picture what my mom did. Growing up in a home with an alcoholic person was dangerous, it was difficult, it was challenging, it wasn't safe. And my mother did not know what to do and she felt stuck because she couldn't financially provide on her own. And as much as she would have wanted to raise me on her own for those first few years, and mind you, just so you know, my mother did not disappear while she gave me to my grandmother. She was around often. But my grandma's home was where I lived. She put me in a basket, and she left me on my grandma's front door, pushing me into the reeds and saying, please care for him for now. You can provide something for him. I cannot. That's selflessness. That's courage. That was hard for her. Again, 25-year-old Josh could not have said that. And then to do the, the to work and the time to be able to build a home to come back and to take me and to give me the life that I hadn't had yet. That's hard work. None of this was ideal for Moses. None of it was ideal for me. None of it was ideal for Jacba, And none of it was ideal for my mother. None of it was ideal for my grandmother. Probably would have loved to enjoy retirement some more. And none of it was ideal for the Pharaoh's daughter. And so for a while, I think it's important maybe for us to sit with some more questions in this story. When I read this story, um, in the spirit of our church asking good questions, I want to ask some wondering questions. I wonder, what would make Moses' mother believe Pharaoh's daughter would pity a Hebrew baby? Had she heard through the servant girl that she wanted a servant child? Had she heard through the servant girl that she didn't agree with her father's way of ruling? Was there some family tension there? Did she, was she defiant? How did she convince her father to let her keep this Hebrew boy that she found? What leverage, what power did she have to use? What family cruelty or difficulty existed there that she did that to be able to keep that child alive? What courage did she have? About the Pharaoh's daughter, I, can't, I just, I wonder what was inside of her that gave her compassion for someone that she had been raised to hate, that she would break a family line of hate towards a certain people group. How about Moses' father? I'm like, where is this dude? What's going on here? What's happening? Where are you? It's kind of what I asked about the story of my father. Where are you at in all this, dude? What's going on? You putting all this on my mom? Where in this narrative is he? Why is he there not caring and protecting for his son? Did he support or disagree with his wife's approach to secure Moses' survival? Did, was, was, did he maybe hold the position like, just you know, let, it, let, let the life be ended and she had to rebel against what the father said and try to scheme and figure out another alternative plan? He seems to not be involved or caring about this. Where is he at in all of this story? There are a lot of unknowns in this biblical story and there are a lot of unknowns in my life and probably in yours as well. There's probably a lot of questions and things that come up of why did my parent do this or why didn't they do that or where were they or why weren't they? It's part of the human experience. It's part of our story. It's deeply a part of who we are, who we're becoming. We all have to probably navigate the disruption of expectations of what our parenting or our childhood could have looked like. And I wonder if Moses ever got to talk with his mother or his adoptive mother about the challenging family dynamics. I wonder if as he got older and he navigated both the tension of being both Hebrew by blood and Egyptian by adoption, I wonder, I wonder what that tension was like for him. I wonder if either of his mothers ever talked to him about that. 
I wonder what, it was, what was inside of him that he would have empathy enough to be the one that would then soon lobby for the liberation of his people who were held in slavery. I wonder if it was essential to have an insider from within the Israelites, from within the Hebrew people, to find themselves being raised amongst the Egyptians, to find the language and the words, and to see and witness the pain of the people to then rise up and be the one that who would cause and bring liberation. I wonder if he can look back at his life or he looked back at his life and saw the pain and the suffering and the difficult family dynamics and narrative and saw how God used all of that to bring the liberation to a group of people who were enslaved. I know I look back at my own life and I think about the pain and suffering I've gone through and how it has formed me and called me to be a part of the liberation of people within a progressive Christian movement who've been oppressed and hurt and harmed and how all of these parts of my story formed me who I am and gave me sensitivity to all of it. What is it for you? How has the pain and suffering in your life, how has the parenting that's been disrupted or the, how has the expectations of your parenting that's been disrupted, how has it or could it or will it shape you? So many questions we could ask. But I do want to give us this as we, as we bring some closure to this message. I want us to think about what are the ways in which we can navigate relationship both as parents with children and children with parents in having healthy understandings of each of our stories and the expressing of disappointment and hurt and harm and the breaking of expectations and the unraveling of our hopes. And so here's three things that, that, have, that, that have been helpful that I think maybe could be helpful for you as well. The first one is honest and authentic communication. You got to have that. Uh, you have to be able to create space where you can express your disappointment, your hopes, and at the same time express grace amidst it and forgiveness. And now all those things don't have to happen in the same conversation. That's a journey. It's taken a journey to get here, and it will take a journey to get to a new place and a new destination. My, I know my grandmother, uh, I love her dearly and care, her, and care for her deeply, but I think as time has gone on, I begin to see how some of the religious things that she has done in my life has caused harm, and it's, I've had to grapple with it. My grandmother, as much as I love her, and she's been formative in my life, uh, she projected a lot of her parenting stuff that she did wrong with my dad onto me. My father had a, if you grew up in Pentecostal church, this is familiar to you, my father had a prophecy over his life. And that prophecy was that he was going to go by train. He was going to go by car. He was going to go by plane to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He did not do that, okay? My father did not do that, but guess who did do that? And so, you know, my grandma said to me another time, she grabbed me by my shoulders and she looked in my eyes and she said, your father took a pass on his prophecy, but it's been passed down to the next generation and you're fulfilling your father's prophecy. I'm like, oh shit, I'm going to need some therapy for that. <laughs> I'm like, don't put that on me. Don't put that on me. I mean, that's heavy. I got I to gotta take down a mantle. I, I don't have my own purpose, my own story. I have to take someone else's and fulfill it. No, 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 no. Now, when I was young, I couldn't speak up to that. But now, whenever my grandma says that to her, I remind her, no, Graham, I, I think I have my own calling, my own story. And also, Dad's life isn't finished yet. There's been plenty of people that God straightened out. He's only in his mid-50s. He's got some, she's got some runway still. Don't give up on him yet. There's been moments when I've had to call my grandma into some authentic conversation and say, that's, that's, let's not say that. That, that's causing harm or that's causing some hurt or, or, or that, 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 kind of re, that, that kind of redirected me in a way that wasn't helpful. You've got to have authentic, genuine conversation. I, as I've said, my mom and I have had a lot of really good conversations that have allowed that bridge 
to be built, to let go of some pain and some hurt on both sides. Number two, learn to separate your worth from approval. Were you made to feel valuable even if you made mistakes? Or were you made to only feel valuable when you were good and performed right? This is a thing that a lot of, uh, lot of, lot of us have deeply ingrained in us, right? The, to only receive praise, to only receive good, to only be told you're good when you do good. And when you do bad, you're bad. And that's coming out for Austin and I in lovely marital counseling that I think if the house is good and everything is perfect and orderly, then I'm good. And if the house isn't orderly because Austin leaves a pile somewhere, I'm not good and we're not good and we need to fix that. See what happens there? See that journey? And so learning to be like, nope, the house can be messy and I can still be good. We can still be good. My inherent goodness isn't tied to my performance. That's work one has to do, right? I just said we're in therapy because we can't do it on our own, right? We have to work on that with somebody outside of us as well. And he can't fix me. That's not his job. Okay, I'm getting deep here. <laughs> um, the, 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 the last thing I'll say here is um, the importance of setting boundaries. You can't change others' opinions or perspectives on you. You can't change that. But here's one quote that I want to give you from Alex Lai, a licensed marriage and family therapist, who offers their perspective in an article on uh, perspective on parental disappointment. They say this, It's important to emphasize that you should not try to change your parent or child's opinion or perspective on you. That is outside of your control. Rather, it's important to focus on minimizing behaviors that are hurtful, such as passive-aggressive comments or critical statements. These boundaries are meant to protect you from being hurt by your parents or your child. And so I'll let you let that sit in, but I want to add this thought. I've said it before. If you create a boundary to cause harm, that's not okay. If you create a boundary to protect yourself from being harmed, that is okay. And so creating those boundaries and making them clear and holding people accountable to them whether that's with your child or whether that's with your parent, that is essential to finding a healthy way to move forward. Because if you continually get hurt by the same thing, you're just heaping more pain onto the same thing instead of finding a way to move forward and say, this has not worked for us in the past. This pattern has not been good. We're going to stop doing this and we're going to do this. Or we're not going to do this and we're going to do that. And when we do do this back again, we're going to apologize, we're going to acknowledge it, and we're going to move forward. And I'm going to call you on it, Right? This is healthy boundaries. This is how one can move forward. So I hope these are helpful thoughts uh, when you think about that. I'll close with this final story um, and, and, and words of encouragement. Um, actually, I don't have time for the final story. I'll skip it. Oh, I shouldn't have spoke that narrative out loud. Uh, it's 12 o'clock. Quickly, I'll tell it. There's uh, two people named Andy and Sandra Stanley. Uh, they, are, they are megachurch pastors, but I really have deep respect for them. And, uh, and they talk about one day their children were being babysat. They come home. The babysitter says to them, your kids were very rude and disrespectful today. They're not usually like that, but they were just so rude and defiant. And so the parents give them some extra money, apologize, send them home. Next morning, mom wakes up, goes to the car, and calls the kids uh, from the house and says, you know, get your wallets, meet me in the car. Uh, and so the kids grab their wallets. I think they're going to the store today. They're super excited. They got all their, you know, their, their, their allowance money. They get in the car, and, and then they, she locks the doors, and she says, so last night, you were really rude and disrespectful to the babysitter, and she said, you did this and this and this, and that wasn't okay. So today we're going to go to the store, and you are going to buy her some flowers, and you're going to get a card, and you're going to write her a note, and then we're going to go to her work, and you're going to apologize to her specifically for the things that you did. And you're going to commit to not doing them again. And if you do them, you're going to commit to doing better and apologizing next time and not, not, not us, me, having to do this. 
And so they get the flowers and they walk past all the cubicles in her office and they go up to her cubicle and they're just like so nervous and they're so scared. And, and they utter out their apology and they give her the flowers and the card and she forgives them and gives them a hug and they move forward. And what I love about this parenting style and method, this is the kind of parent I want to embody. They would have much rather their parents said, you get no video games or a huge long talk or you can't see your friends for a week. They would have much rather preferred that. But that would not have accomplished anything. Punishment would not have reconciled the relationship. Instead, she made them do the hard thing, which was to repair what they had done so that the relationship could move forward in a healthy way. This is what we're all called to do in our relationship with our children, in our relationship with our parents, to not be so fixated on the punishment so that they learn the lesson that you hurt me, but instead be fixated on naming the pain so that we can reconcile and move forward in a healthy way. Amen? Amen. So parents in the room, I pray this over you as I invite the worship team to come. I pray that you would have the grace with yourself for the ways you have and will fall short of your expectations. The ways you have and you will fall short of your expectations. The expectations you have of yourself and the expectations your children will have of you. And may you be willing to acknowledge the impact of your imperfection and to share in the intent of your actions. And for all of us who have been parented, I pray that you would have grace with your parent. May you extend to them the same grace that you hope to extend to yourself or that you do extend to yourself. And may you continually love and accept your parent in all the ways that you desire to be loved and accepted. I think if we do that, I think that'll be like a bouquet of flowers and a card and an apology, and it'll build bridges of hope and love. May you love your parents, and may you love your kids well. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.